Thank you for taking the time to listen to this sermon from Seekers Christian Fellowship. We believe that God's Word completes the believer, making them fully equipped men and women of God, ready for every good work. It is our prayer that through this message, you're challenged by the Word of God, built up in love for God and one another, conforming to the image of Jesus Christ. Well, um, it's a very familiar uh, passage that we're looking at this morning. Um, The very first miracle or sign that Jesus performed at a wedding in Cana where water was turned to wine. Very familiar. I'm sure most of you have heard that uh, passage read many times over the course of your life and in church. And and it's stories like uh, this one that really divide Um, the readers of the Bible, really divides the readers of the Bible. Because there are those of us who are Christian, and when we hear John chapter 2, we take that as history, right? That that, that is absolute truth. Like Like that really, really happened, and we believe that because it's in the very Word of God, right? Our firm foundation, the foundation of our faith, the foundation of our church. That's us as Christians, but we must not forget that um, there are many people, um, perhaps some of us here, um, some watching online, uh, who can't help but roll their eyes and, uh, and will quickly dismiss what um, our elder just read uh, as make-believe. I mean, water turning to wine, right? I mean, you must be, this, this, surely this is myth, Right? Like, this can't be real. And as I thought about that, I think the reason people are so quick to dismiss miracles and they dismiss um, signs in the Bible, I think the reason is that they, have, uh, they are anti-miracles, okay? They're anti- and what I mean by this is this. Um, in their worldview, there is just no room for the supernatural, you know people like that, right? There's, there's just no, there's no room for what science or what, or what nature cannot explain in, in their worldview. For them, God must fit within the limits of my understanding, right? And so therefore, if I can't explain something, if I have never seen H2O become ethanol, well then it must not be possible. It must not be true. That's what an anti-miracle mindset is. Um, And so it's with these anti-miracle friends in mind that I was very excited to study this passage the last few weeks. You know why? Because in this passage, we meet several characters who had never, ever witnessed a miracle by Jesus before. This is the first of his signs. So none of these individuals had witnessed Jesus perform a miracle, and so I thought to myself, this is great, right? This is great. Why? Because um, those anti-miracle friends of mine, and maybe some of you, and maybe those watching from home, they're going to tune in, and they're going to hear this this message, and and they're going to hear about people just like them who saw water turn to wine, and after seeing that miracle, believed, okay? At least that's what I... That's what I thought I was going to preach this morning. (laughs) 
But as I looked closer at the account in John chapter 2, and if you survey the other signs that are going to come in this gospel, the gospel of John, what you will realize and what I realize is that actually seeing a miracle does not always mean that you will believe. It does, seeing a, in fact, as we will discover, many people may see the miracle that we're reading about, but not all believed. And so I was, I was, I was honestly, I'm telling you the truth, this week, I was stuck. I think it was Tuesday, Monday or Tuesday, I was pacing around my, I was reading and rereading the passage, I was thinking, why, like, why God, why would someone who witnessed the miracle, who was right there witnessing a miracle, why would, they, why would that miracle not cause them to believe? And then it became clear, it's not about the miracle. It's not about the wine. That's the title for my sermon this morning. It's not about the wine. Because if you and I, if all we see in this text is water turned to wine, we risk missing what this sign was really pointing to. The glory of Jesus. The glory of Jesus. And so, my church family and, and friends and those watching from home, this morning, I want you to see past the miracle. Don't stop. Don't stop at the wine. See past the sign to see what it really points to. Because if you do that, you will see that it points to the glory of Jesus. And those who see His glory are those who truly believe. That's the main idea. Those who see the glory of Jesus are those who truly believe. So with that um, introduction, uh, let's begin. If you can, if you haven't already, please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 2. As you know always, we need to have our Bibles open to follow along. We're going to go verse by verse. John chapter 2, we're in verse, starting in verse 1. It's the very first week of Jesus' ministry, right? That's what we've been looking at so far. And um, he called his first few disciples uh, last Sunday, right? Pastor Dave spoke on that, and we, we saw how the apostle John and, and Andrew, right? Andrew, you went and got your brother Peter. That was a joke. That landed last week, but this week it's not landing the same way. Um, so we, we had John, and then we had Andrew and Peter, and then we learned about Philip and then Nathaniel. You remember Nathaniel, right? Can anything good come from Nazareth, right? That Nathaniel. So, so Jesus has, has, has called his first few disciples, and when we get to chapter 2, verse 1, we learn that there's a wedding. There's a wedding in Cana, at a place called Cana in Galilee, and at the end of verse 1 it says, and the mother of Jesus was there, and, verse 2, Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. So what a time and a place for Jesus to perform his very first sign, a wedding. A wedding. The marriage between a husband and wife. It's a covenant that the Bible tells us actually refers to what? Christ and his church. Amazing. The first, um, first sign performed at a wedding. 
Now, the fact that both Mary and Jesus were invited to this wedding tells us something. It tells us that likely the couple were, were close friends or, or, or relatives even um, of Mary um, and the family. We kind of get that sense because in verse 3, Mary knows about the catering problem, right? Like, Mary, Mary, like, how do you, you have to be close enough to know about the catering problem at the wedding. In verse 5, she's close enough to be able to order the servants around, right? And so this must have been kind of a, a, some sort of a close family or close friend, a wedding of a close family or friend. Now, as married folks in our church will probably tell you, planning a wedding is not easy. It's not easy. You have to think about the, the ceremony, right, and the reception, and then all the, all the, um, uh, the, the guest list, the, the expenses, the, 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 all the details. I'm probably traumatizing some of you right now, right, because some of you have a wedding coming up, right, so I'm reminding you of things you're trying to run away from, but, but it's true. It's very stressful. You're trying to, trying to match the, find the right shade of blue in your tie to match the cake somehow, right? It's stressful. And for those couples who are preparing for your own wedding this year, we're blessed in this church to have a few couples who are in that season. I want to tell you that in first century Galilee, and this is meant to make you feel a little little bit better, okay? In first century Galilee, did you know that weddings were not just one day? (laughs) That weddings in those days could last as long as a week. Can you imagine? Days of celebration. So whatever I'm, what, what am I saying? I'm saying whoever, whoever's planning a wedding this year, you have it easy, right? Don't forget how easy you have it. <laughs> so here we are. We're, we're a few days into this wedding. It's at, at Cana. And in verse 3, look at verse 3, the embarrassing discovery is made that the wine has run out. The wine has run out. Now, this is a social catastrophe, Okay, I want you to put yourself in, in, in these shoes, right? So here are all your loved ones, right? All these honored guests that you've brought to your wedding, and you didn't care enough or you didn't um, uh, respect them enough to ensure that there was enough food or wine, to provide enough wine. This is a failure that would have stigmatized and followed this couple for the rest of their lives. What would the gossip say? The gossips would say, you know, so-and-so, oh yeah, wasn't that the wedding where the wine ran out? That's what they would say. It would have followed them. And so, um, I I couldn't believe this when I read it, but I'm going to tell you anyways. You know, in those days, the groom was expected to pay 100% of the wedding. None of this 50-50 business. Right? It was 100%. So, it, it was all on him. And so, a failure like this... Why I'm saying it is a failure like this to not provide enough for your guests meant that the bride's family could even, guess what, could even sue you. (laughs) Can you imagine you just got married and the first morning you wake up and then there's a lawsuit from your in-laws? Just imagine that. Can you imagine? Now, that's a rhetorical question. Don't answer it, please. Some of you are thinking, well, that might happen to me. No, no. They had no wine, and it was a social This was a serious thing. I think a word about wine is important here before we continue. 
Um, in those days, because of the warm climate and the lack of refrigeration, um, if you left fruit juice outside for any length of time, it would ferment into wine. And many of you know this, but for the benefit of those who do not know this, do not know this, I want to say, the Bible is unmistakably clear, verse after verse after verse, that getting drunk with wine is sin. It's sin. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. The Bible is clear about it. It is sin against God, not to mention how drunkenness hurts the ones we love, or worse, puts them in harm's way. So for this reason, you will find that many Christians, myself included, will choose to abstain completely from the impairing effects of alcohol. But though the Bible, now here's where I need to be very, very careful with you, though the Bible clearly and unequivocally condemns drunkenness, it does not forbid the consumption of wine. Does that make sense? It doesn't cons- uh, forbid the consumption of wine. Because if it did, it would be kind of hypocritical for Jesus to turn water to wine, right? That you, you, it makes sense, right? That's contradictory. So, so we have to be careful not to judge where the Bible is not being, uh, be, uh, judging. Drunkenness is sin. Uh, the consumption of wine is not. And if you wish to discuss this further... Um, Pastor Ronald is back next week, so I will leave that with, with him. So, so, <laughs> so Mary learns of this, of this serious problem. So the wine has run out, and in verse 3, she turns to her son, look at verse 3, and she tells him, um, she tells him about the problem, and at this point, honestly, at this point in the narrative, it's really not clear what is she expecting uh, Jesus to do. It's not clear, right, from, from just from verse 3. It's not clear what she's expecting him to do. But his response in verse 4 tells us that there's more going on here than Mary sees. Okay? There's more here than meets the eye. Look at verse 4. Jesus says to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, I know every family is a little different. Um, I have some friends who call their parents by their first name. So they say, oh, they talk to their mom. They'll say, hey, hey, Jill, or, you know, they'll talk to their dad. They'll say, hey, Bill. But let me tell you something. If I ever, if I ever came home and called my mom woman, that'd be the last day. That'd be the last day for me. So this is startling, right? This is startling. Jesus calls her woman. He doesn't call her mother, right? He calls her woman. And so at first you think, that sounds kind of abrupt. That sounds kind of, it's startling. But as abrupt as it sounds, it turns out this term woman in that day actually was a polite form of address. It was a polite form of address. It wasn't rude. It wasn't rude. Even from the cross, when Jesus tells John to take Mary, he says, woman, here is your son. And so, so, so it wasn't rude. So I, don't want you, I don't want you to get me wrong. It's like today, the modern equivalent would be like saying ma'am, 
like saying ma'am. That would be the modern equivalent. So Jesus is not disrespecting Mary by any means. However, her term, his term woman um, conveys a sense of distance. It distances him from her. Right? It lacks intimacy, doesn't it? And in case we're not clear, the next question that he asks makes, it, makes the distance even greater. Look at verse 4. He says, what, is, what does he ask her? He says, what does this have to do with me? And the literal, literally the translation of that is, what to me and to you? In other words, what is there in common between you and I? That's what Jesus is asking. What is there in common between you and I? You see, church, for 30 years, Jesus had grown up as Mary's little boy, as Mary's son. But now, the time had come for his earthly ministry to begin, and their relationship as mother and son would forever change. Would forever change. Her authority over him had come to an end. I love the way John MacArthur puts it. He says, Jesus had completed his mother's business, and now he was about his father's business. Not Joseph, his, his heavenly father. No earthly relationships were ever going to determine Christ's actions, and Mary needed to realize this. She needed to learn and to realize that she no longer was to relate to him as her son, but rather as the Son of God, the Christ. We see this elsewhere. I just want to show you from Mark um, another passage where this comes up. Jesus answers some people. He says, you know, your, your, your mother and your brother are outside. He says, who are my mother and my brothers? Look at the next verse. He says, he looks at those around him and he says, here are my mother and my brothers. What's the, what's the point? For whoever does the will of God, he is my mother and, and brother and sister and mother. Whoever does the will of God. You see, Jesus was on a mission to do the will of God. He was on a divinely ordained um, uh, timetable. And Mary had forgotten her place. She had no authority to intervene. As an aside, um, this is why we disagree with our Roman Catholic friends. This, 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 this passage... When they offer prayers to Mary, hoping that she can somehow um, intercede, you know, speak to Jesus on our behalf, we, she has no such authority. She can't. And at the end of verse 4, Jesus gives us the reason. Look at the reason for his abrupt response. Look at it. He says, my hour has not yet come. So what is this hour? He's talking about. What's the hour? Well, if you look elsewhere in the Gospels, you'll see that the hour that Jesus is referring to is the hour of his death, the time of his death on the cross. That's the hour when the Lamb of God would die for the sin of the world. So I hope you're following the sequence, okay? Just make sure you follow the line of questioning. First, Mary says, there's no wine. Then Jesus says, what does this have to do with me? And then he follows up by saying, my hour or my time to die on the cross has not yet come. Right? 
So I have to be honest with you, when I first heard that, or when you first read this passage maybe many years ago, the first thing I thought, I, I thought it seems like Jesus is saying it's too early for me to perform this public miracle. Have you ever thought that? I, I, I used to think that. It's too early in the timeline for him to do such a public miracle, almost as if if he did this, it would, it would rush him um, ahead of schedule. Do you know what I mean? Ahead of schedule to the cross. But if you think about it more carefully, that doesn't fully make sense. Why? Because he ends up performing the miracle. So, so that can't be the full explanation. So we need to figure out what is the relationship between Jesus' death and this sign of, of wine, okay? What do they have to do with each other? Well, as it turns out, in the Old Testament, this is fascinating, in the Old Testament, um, wine was a kind of a symbol for the Jews. It was a symbol, and it symbolized a future time of great joy and gladness when God was going to save them, okay? So I want you to look at this. This is, this is amazing. So in the prophet Isaiah, go ahead, uh, brother. Um, Prophet Isaiah chapter 25, look at verse 6. Isaiah says, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, right? Of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. When is this going to take place? Look at verse 8. See if you can guess. Verse 8, He will swallow up death forever. Sound familiar? And the Lord God will wipe away tears, every tear, or tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. Look at verse 9. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. That's what's going to be said on that day. Um, this is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice. In, this, in his salvation. So what am I saying? Do you see, church, that what Jesus is saying is the time for wine, the time for great joy and gladness with God in eternity, that time is not yet. Why? Because before that salvation can occur, what must take place first? The hour. Jesus knew that first his hour must come. His, his journey to the cross must come and be completed where he would suffer and die for our sins because only if that took place could he save us that we might feast with God in joy forever. Do you see the sequence now? The order of events. Jesus' focus was not on the wine. His focus was on what? The cross. His focus was on the cross. And so in verse 5, Mary, Mary accepts this clarification. She recognizes her place. Notice she doesn't dispute with him any further. She doesn't question him anymore. She doesn't say, oh, what about all the 30 years I did for you? No, none of that. She lays down the authority she had wrongly assumed. She turns to the servants and says, do whatever he tells you. Now, when you first hear that, honestly, at first I thought, is Mary completely ignoring what Jesus just said? Right? Because it sounds like 
Jesus said this. He said, my hour has not yet come. And then, he, and then she just turns and says, do whatever he tells you, assuming it's going to happen. But I don't think you should see it that way. What it means, what does this mean? When she says, do whatever he tells you, what it means is whatever is about to happen in this passage, this miracle that's about to happen is not taking place because a mother asked her son. It's not. It's taking place because the son ordained it. Does that make sense? It's, it's, not taking, it's not by the will of Mary or by the will of any other human authority that Jesus is doing this miracle. In fact, what we're seeing is whatever he's doing is by the will of God. It must have been part of his mission to the cross. Part of his mission to the cross to perform the miracle at this time. Does that make sense? And so now we come to the miracle here in verse 6. Look at verse 6. Says now, John says, now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Now, that's a lot of water, right? That's a lot of water, and that's not even the water for drinking, right? Remember, it says here, this is for the Jewish rites of purification. So what are these? Well, the Jews had accumulated so many... Um, rituals and rules, like not even what had been commanded by God, but, but what they had added, traditions, so that everything needed to be washed. Look at this. I want you to see this in Mark 7. Uh, it'll come up on the screen. The Pharisees and the Jews. This is in Mark 7. The Pharisees and the Jews, all the Jews, do not eat unless they wash their hands properly. Well, that's good advice anyways, right? Wash your hands before you eat. We all know that. But, but it takes it a step further. Um, holding to the traditions of the elders. Keep reading. It says, um, and when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups, pots, copper vessels, dining couches. You see, under the old way of Judaism, this is what they thought they had to do, to be clean, right? To make themselves pure, this is what they did. So you can imagine at a wedding party with so many guests over several days, to follow all these laws would require so much water, right? Gallons and gallons of water. So Jesus says to the servants in verse 7, he says, fill the jars, uh, verse 7, fill the jars with water. Now, I like to do this where I imagine I was in the scenario and how I would respond. And I, I encourage you to do that too. Imagine you were a servant for a moment, okay? You're a servant at this wedding, and there's no more wine. Uh, the guests are getting, the guests are asking, right? You've been to a wedding, right, where, where you kind of, you're trying to find the guest server and say, hey, can I have more of those appetizers, right? The guests are getting a bit anxious. They're asking for more, and, you're, and everyone is getting stressed out. It's like, where's the wine? And this is a social catastrophe that is unfolding. And here's Jesus saying, fill the jars with water. Now, now, that sounds absurd. If you're a servant, this is his first sign, right? So no one knows what he's about to do. You're going to do what he says because you're just a servant. You've been ordered to do it. But if you were of an anti-miracle mindset... I can almost see the servants looking at each other like, what? <laughs> like, what are we doing? The people are asking for wine, and here we are filling these things with water. 
But they do it. And in fact, John includes a detail in verse 7. I hope you caught it. Look at verse 7 at the very end. You shouldn't miss this. It says, they filled the jars up to the brim. See that? So if you've ever filled a cup up to the brim, you know that if you were to drop uh, a drop of anything into that cup, if it's really up to the brim, what will happen? It will spill, spill over the edge, right? So, so, so you have to wonder, okay, why would John include that little detail? It seems like, what's the point of that? Well, actually, um, in those days, wine was often mixed with water, mixed with water. Right? So, so if wine was too strong, they would dilute it by mixing it with water. In fact, in that warm climate, if you, if you mixed wine with water, you actually quenched people's thirst better, wouldn't you? By mixing the wine with water. So, so why is John including this detail? Well, because if there were skeptical or anti-miracle people reading, they might have thought to themselves, well, well they would have easily dismissed this. If the jars were not filled to the brim, they could have said what? Well, the water wasn't turned to wine. It was mixed with wine. They must have mixed it. It's not a miracle. But John's detail in the end of, at the end of verse 7 actually eliminates that theory. It eliminates that explanation. Isn't it amazing how God's Word addresses even the slightest doubts that come into our minds? Verse 8, and he says to them, he says to, he says to the servants, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And so they took it. And I don't know if you appreciate what just happened, okay? In the space between verse 7 and verse 8, without an announcement, (laughs) without any fanfare, what happened? Jesus turned water into wine. And that's, that's what happened. Between verse, because they drew it out and they took it to the master of the feast, and he said it was good wine, so that means that the transformation, the miracle happened just then, where the eternal God, through whom all things were made, without whom was not anything made that was made, who had lived in obscurity in a little town of Nazareth for 30 years, this Jesus is now peeling back the veil and showing us who he really is, that he is the creator God who is sovereign over all of nature, who is, who is the creator of the universe, who is sovereign over science, in whom all things hold together, and who graciously provides to meet the needs of people. To meet the needs of people. Now, I don't know much about making wine, but from what I'm told, did you notice he didn't, he didn't need seeds He didn't need soil, he didn't need sunlight, he didn't need a vine, he didn't need grapes, he didn't need crushing, he didn't need straining or fermenting. No, the Son of God created wine from water. Do you see the power? Do you see the power and the provision of Jesus? And so the servants bring the water turned wine to the master of the feast. You know, the master of the feast is kind of like today in a wedding, you'll see a master of ceremonies, right? An MC. And they're supposed to make sure that everyone gets their food at the right time. And, and uh, they sampled everything, you know, to make before it was served. 
And when he tasted this new wine, look at verse 9, and he did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water, they knew, they knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. Now, I want you to remember, the bridegroom is the one who is carrying the most shame and guilt at this point. Right? Right? Why? Because it was, it was on him. He was the one who was responsible, right, to plan and to prepare and to provide enough for this wedding and for his bride and for, and for their honored guests. So he's walking around with the most shame in the room, and then Jesus comes and changes everything. His provision removes the shame of the groom. Completely turns everything upside down. And the master of the feast calls him over and look at verse 10 and he says, everyone, everyone serves the good wine first. That was the custom. You serve the best food first. The best drink first. And when people have drunk freely, when their tastes have dulled, when they're kind of full... That's when the poor wine is served. But you, you have kept the good wine until now. Folks, this was the sweetest, freshest, highest quality wine that anyone had ever tasted because it was made by God Himself. It completely skipped over the curse, right? didn't need the soil or the seed or the earth or anything else. It was just made by God Himself. Just imagine. And yet, as we said from the outset, this narrative, this account is not about the wine. It's not. The wine is a sign, which means it points to something else. It points to something deeper. There's a deeper meaning which you and I must not miss when we read this, this account because the surpassing greatness of the new wine over the, the old water that was in those jars, right? That difference, that contrast points to the surpassing greatness of what? The gospel of Jesus over the old law of works that came through Moses. You need to see this contrast. Moses turned water into blood. Jesus turned water into wine. The law that was given through Moses brought nothing but death to us. The grace and truth in Jesus brings joy and brings life everlasting. The gallons of water in those jars could never, ever truly have cleansed those people or purified them of their sin. But the wine of the new covenant, which is what? The blood of Jesus washes white as snow. Do you see the glory, the glorious grace of Christ? And so John concludes in verse 11. He says, This, 
the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. And here it is. And manifested his glory. His glory. And his disciples believed in him. This is what miracles do, church. This is what biblical miracles do. They manifest not the glory of the, of the person or, or you who received the miracle. They manifest the glory of Jesus. Of Jesus. Meaning they reveal to us who he really is. They put on display his deity. Like a billboard sign when you're on the highway and you just can't miss this massive billboard sign that's pointing you and directing you and saying, Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Christ. Now, I don't know if you notice this, but if you look at verse 11, there is a glaring omission in verse 11. Um, there is no record of what happened to those servants. Do you see that? The disciples believed. There's no mention. The servants who had drawn the water themselves, right? The servants who had um, witnessed that very water turned to wine. Even the master of ceremonies, we're not even sure, right? Because he didn't know where the wine had come from, right? But there's no mention about whether or not these servants believed. There's no mention. If you look a few verses later in John chapter 2, verse 23 to 24. We're going to cover this later, so I'm not going to go too much into it, but it says there that many people um, believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus on his part did not, um, next verse, Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them. Why? Because he knew all people. Later on, John tells us even more clearly in John 12, verse 37, though he had done so many signs, <laughs> so countless signs before them, what does it say? They still did not believe in him. What does this mean? What does this mean? This is what it means, dear friends, and I'm speaking not... Not just to the, not to the believers here, but, but, but really to those of you who don't believe or who are still struggling. What this means is it is possible to even see a miracle, to see a sign and, and even have a superficial faith, like to believe in, 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 in Jesus, but to completely miss that it points to His glory. Do you see that? To completely miss what it's all about. This is what happens. When you come to Jesus for the wine, when you come to Jesus for the loaves of bread, or for the fish, or for the healing, or for what miracle He can do for you, if that's why you come to Jesus, do you really believe in Him or are you just here for the signs? Are you just here for what He can do for you in your little sphere of the world? Because in the case of people like that, 2 Corinthians 4.4 says, their minds are blinded from seeing the light of the gospel of what? Of the glory of Christ. The glory. 
This is what made the disciples different. This is what makes you and I different, church, those of you who believe. We didn't just see the wine. They didn't just see the wine. They saw the glory of Jesus and they believed. These disciples had heard, remember John chapter 1, they heard John the Baptist, right? John the Baptist first, and then they, they even heard Jesus himself. And now they had witnessed the sign and, and his manifest, he manifested his glory and they witnessed the glory and their faith was confirmed. So as I conclude, church, family, and friends, um, when you read this narrative about how Jesus was undeterred in his mission to the cross to die for you, and when you recognize his supernatural power and his provision, and when you Recognize and realize that no amount of water, that no gallons of water, no amount of works of the law of trying to be a good person, none of that can make you pure, but only the grace of the gospel can cleanse you of your sin. When you see these things, do you know what you're seeing? You're seeing His glory. His glory. And those who see His glory are those who truly belief. Worship team, if you can come, and um, church, if you could stand as we close in prayer. I want to leave you with this, um, this purpose statement, why John wrote the whole gospel, Okay. It says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, many other signs which are not written in this book, but these are written, why? So that you may believe, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, that He is the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life. You may have life in His name. Let's pray. Father, this is our cry. This is what we want. Oh, Lord, not just to seek signs or miracle or wonders, but to see the glory of Christ. To see the glory, O oh God, and that by believing, we may have life. We may have life in Jesus. So I pray for my church family, that as they read at home, as they go back and do their devotions or spend time with you, that, oh Lord, it would not become routine. It would not become um, just an exercise that we go through daily but rather that they would see your glory page after page after page in your word and that they would believe. And, and for those who don't, Father, for those who may be here and they're waiting for a sign, they're waiting for something, some miracle, something to convince them and to, to change their heart to come and, and follow you, Lord, we can see here that that's a dangerous game. 
Lord, that many people may experience and see signs in the Scriptures, but this does not lead to belief. Rather, God, we ask that they would see your glory. Let them see your glory. For those, take the blinders off so that they may see the light of the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ, the image of God. And by seeing, help them to believe. And by believing, may they have life in your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.